Isn't it a great blessing to be able to come together on this Sunday afternoon the way that we are? It truly is a remarkable honor in so many ways. You and I constitute the church about which we prayed a moment ago. Jesus established it with His blood, according to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. And you and I are those purchased from the clutches of the devil and set on course for everlasting life. Tonight, as we come to this part of our worship service, we're going to focus for the next few moments on two characters, one of which is no doubt lesser known than the other, but both, I believe, will appreciate. It truly is a remarkable set of consequences and conclusions. We're going to study about Isaac on the one hand and Jesus on the other. These introductory remarks will set us on course for the lesson, and it begins in the following way. Isn't it amazing to give thought to the characters that occur in the Bible? Both Old and New Testament, often we can identify rather easily with the circumstances they face. And not only that, there are times that they set before us a very real connection. Now, there are other times we struggle to identify with some of them. But when we come to Isaac tonight, we're no doubt very familiar with he was one of that set of three that so often is mentioned. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. One of the three patriarchs. Now, inasmuch as he was the son of Abraham, you probably easily understand his name often occurs in the Bible. About 128 times. But of those, are rather shockingly, about 20 of them in the New Testament. That tells you and I immediately that even the New Testament writers hearkened back to the reality of Isaac and used that to teach some rather dramatic truths. Adding to all of that, we observe this. There's a connection that is established in the Bible. A connection between Isaac on the one hand and Jesus on the other. Maybe some of these things we never have considered that deeply. But tonight, that's going to be our goal and our idea. Already in your mind, can you think of ways that the life of Isaac in some way parallel the life of Jesus? Can you imagine things about the life of Isaac that foreshadowed the truths of the life of Jesus? Perhaps some of them occur to you, maybe others do not. Tonight, as you have your Bible handy, we're going to often refer to Genesis, but on the other hand, often the book of Hebrews. As you and I close that slide, let's look at some of these connections under the following banner that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. I hope by the time we finish this lesson tonight, you and I will have a renewed appreciation for the providence of God, a renewed understanding of just how particular He has been about bringing the affairs of time to a consummation. And with that said, let's notice our first parallel between the lives of these gentlemen. First of all, their birth. As you look back to the book of Genesis, let's begin in chapter 17 of that book. As you immediately reflect upon the manner of the birth of Isaac, all we're going to do is select the following observation. Genesis 17, beginning in verse number 15, reads like this. And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be. I will bless her and give thee a son also of her. Yea, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Then Abraham fell upon his face and laughed and said in his heart, Shall a child be born unto him that is an hundred years old? 
And shall Sarah, that is ninety years old, bear? You and I remember the rather interesting story about the chapters preceding this one. When Abraham and Sarah had no children of their own. Ultimately, of course, Hagar was enlisted, if you please, and she did bear a child to Abraham, but Sarah was not that child's mother. The fact remains, as you give thought to Isaac, there was to be a son of promise, and here Abraham laughed at the thought that Sarah could have a child. She was past childbearing years. She had reached that point in life when there was no longer the possibility as far as he knew for that. Not only did Sarah, or rather did Abraham, consider it preposterous. Look at the next chapter. In Genesis 18, verses 11 and 12, read like this. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old and well stricken in age, and it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? We here notice that there was a time when angelic visitors came and spoke with Abraham and they revealed to him about the fact that Sarah was to have a child and she heard all this in the tent behind them and she too considered it absurd to think that she could have a child. One of our first observations is the birth of Isaac was a supernatural matter in that it was the blessing of God that allowed it to be. By the very natural course of things it could not have happened. What about Jesus? Oh, you and I know very well about His birth. You may remember that He was born of a virgin. In fact, in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 35, Mary even made the observation when the angel told her that she was with child. She said, How can these things be, seeing I know not a man? Mary knew that by the natural course of things, she couldn't possibly be pregnant. And yet, The Holy Spirit had come upon her, and it was with child that she was. And so we notice there was a likeness, or at least a similarity, between the supernatural births of both of these. Isaac on the one hand, and Jesus on the other. But what about the bottom of that slide? The matter of circumcision. Isn't it true that on the eighth day of his life, Isaac was circumcised? Revisiting Genesis chapter 21, you note with me the following. In verse number 4 of that chapter, it says, And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac, being eight days old, as God had commanded him. There had been a commandment provided, of course, and God had instituted with Abraham the reality of what you and I recognize as circumcision. You'll notice on the eighth day of his life, Isaac was circumcised. But now, as you proceed along the train of time, you arrive at a text such as Luke 2, verse 21. When Joseph and Mary, by this time, of course, Jesus had been born to Mary, and sure enough, it says on the eighth day of his life, his parents had him circumcised. And so you'll notice that the parallel is exceedingly complete in this sense, but doesn't it highlight the following? Please appreciate that we ought not merely think of circumcision as it relates to the law of Moses. Abraham and Isaac lived long before the law of Moses ever came into effect. That law didn't come until Sinai in Exodus 20, and yet Isaac was circumcised hundreds and hundreds of years prior to that. This was an appreciation about a family who trusted in the ways of God and who were committed to carrying that out. As you think about these two points, 
on the one hand this matter of circumcision, and on the other, the issue concerning their births, the plot begins to thicken. It thickens in the following way. Notice point number three that also is a similarity between these. The life that they each lived. Now the first one is going to take us on a bit of a journey. Would you come with me to Genesis 22 and consider some aspects of the life of Isaac? I'm sure that among the issues in the book of Genesis, those of chapter 22 rise or bubble to the surface very, very exceedingly. After the amazing birth of Isaac, the fact that the son of promise had been born, that God had carried out to Abraham and to Sarah that which He promised to them. The time came in chapter 22, verse 1. It says, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And in a sense, you and I nearly recoil in disbelief. God had orchestrated the affairs of time to bring about the birth of this son, Isaac, through the lineage and loins of Abraham and Sarah. And then the time comes that God tells his father Abraham, you go and offer him. God was very clear, your only son, the one you love, the one that's called Isaac, you offer him as a burnt offering to me. Now as you reflect upon that, that leads me to ask you about the life that Isaac lived. As you proceed to read that which follows, verse 3 begins that journey like this. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass while I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Pausing at that point, you already begin to appreciate a few things with me. Might you and I ask the following question, How old was Isaac when this took place? Perhaps you've seen artists' renditions of this. Maybe you have even read descriptions in which often Isaac's pictured as a little boy. May I suggest to you he was no little boy. Conservatively, he was seemingly between the ages of 20 and 30. That puts a whole new picture on this, doesn't it? Even if he was but 20, he was in the vigor and the enthusiastic eagerness of life. He was a strong young man by that time. And remember, his dad was a hundred years older than he, meaning Abraham would have been 120 by this point. You can imagine something took place. As they journeyed along, it would appear at the beginning, Isaac did not know what was about to happen. In fact, the time came when Isaac had this conversation with his father. My father, verse number 7, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Isaac knew very well what they were going to do, but he didn't see anything to offer. 
He must have known the meticulousness of his father. Dad always made preparation for offering of things to God. Dad, I see the wood, but where's the offering? There came a time when they arrived at the place of offering, and Dad began to tie his hands. It had to occur to Isaac by that point what was going to happen. And Isaac went through with it. He didn't fight with his father. He didn't overwhelm him. And remember, he was a hundred years younger than his daddy. No doubt he could have physically beaten up his father if he wanted to. No doubt he could have resisted being offered, and yet he acquiesced to it. Talk about a life of obedience. Because it was his father's will, he did it. He allowed himself to be bound and placed on that altar. That life of obedience is highlighted in the text before us, isn't it? What if you and I come then to Jesus? We know very well that He lived a life of obedience. In fact, in John 8 verse 29, He Himself admitted, I always do those things that please my Heavenly Father. And that word always highlights a completeness without exception. You notice that obedience is perhaps highlighted in this way in Hebrews chapter 5 verses 8 and 9. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all them that obey him. Just like Isaac was obedient to Abraham, his father, in light of the matter of his own offering, Jesus obeyed his father in matters of his own offering. The parallel is stunning, isn't it? Let's look at another one. What about number four? What about the way in which these two are referenced in the Bible? Let's begin by first of all revisiting Genesis 22. Verse number 2 again, As God directed these commandments to Abraham, it says, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac. Maybe you heard that anew as I read it a moment ago. I thought Abraham had another boy named Ishmael. And yet here God said, Take your son, your only son. In the mind of God, Isaac was the son of promise. Now, Ishmael was blessed in a different way. Ishmael was honored in a different mechanism by physical character lineage. But in regard to the son of promise, Isaac was the only one. Now, holding that in mind, look over to Hebrews chapter 11. There's another reference to Isaac. In verse number 17 of that chapter, and this was the first of the lesson text read just a moment ago. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had offered the promises, or the, I'm sorry, he that had received the promises, offered up his only begotten son. There Isaac is called the only begotten son. I'm sure already your mind has raced to Genesis, or rather John chapter 3 verse 16. Because if Isaac is called the only begotten son of Abraham... John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus is called the only begotten Son as well. And Notice again the parallel in a rather remarkable way highlights a comparison. The fact that perhaps a long, long time before actually He was born, the life of Isaac gave us some particular some features about the life of Jesus. So far, these four have set before us some remarkable matters of similarity. Let's look at number five. What else about these two 
has a similarity. Could I invite you to consider the place of death? Back in Genesis chapter 22, when God had given direction and instruction to Abraham to take his son, you'll notice that God specified where he was to go and offer Isaac as the sacrifice. Could I invite you to note the six-letter word again? In Genesis chapter 22, verse number 2, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. God told Abraham where to go. You take Isaac, and it's not left to you to go just anywhere you may so choose. You go to the land of Moriah. And almost immediately, it seems to me, that brings us to yet a fifth comparison, a fifth similarity. Moriah, by actual name, is mentioned only one other time as I can find it in the Bible. It's in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. When you reflect upon, though, the incidents there, it's again an amazing thing because Solomon at that point was making preparation for the construction of the temple. Where did Solomon build the temple? Mount Moriah. The same place where Isaac, in fact, was bound by his father and placed on an altar hundreds of years earlier, that's the very place that Solomon constructed the, t the temple. In fact, many have noted the remarkable correspondence there. And by the way, when you and I think about that temple, notice centuries later, where did Jesus die? Oh, you and I know well that the actual walls of Jerusalem and what re were regarded as its city limits, if you please, those moved over time. Could it be that the mountain on which Isaac was bound by his father and the very mountain on which Abraham was ready to offer him as a sacrifice was the same mountain that was known as a place of a skull and the same mountain called Golgotha where our Savior was crucified centuries later? Could it be? There's no single verse that I know of that indicates it, but surely Golgotha was in the vicinity. It might have been the same one. I'll leave that to you to think about the stunning character of that similarity. Could it be that the same place where Jesus was crucified is the same one where Isaac was ready to be offered centuries earlier? Point number five has asked us to think about the place of death, but what about number six? When you think about the character of number six, think about the wood. Could I call to your attention again a text in Genesis 22? Verse number six reads it like this. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. The wood was laid on Isaac. May we make this observation? As they journeyed to the place of Moriah, as they journeyed to the place wherein that sacrifice was to take place, who carried the wood? Well, Isaac did. And might we ask, that's the same wood on which Isaac himself was to be offered as a sacrifice. As you and I make that notation, look at Jesus. Jesus carried the wood on which He was crucified as well. After He was declared guilty... We remember that, of course, the Jews were unable to carry out the sentence of execution, and they brought him before Pilate, a Roman official. Pilate ultimately found no guilt in him, but nonetheless washed his hands of the matter and turned him over to the Jews. And you and I remember that. After he was scourged, flogged, if you please, 
he too, as he trudged toward the place of crucifixion, he carried his own cross. So might we notice that Jesus carried the wood on which he was offered and Isaac carried the wood on which he was to have been offered. One more time, a similarity seems rather apparent. This sixth observation, the one at the bottom, highlights for us yet another one. What about the one that occurs next? The one that is number seven. What about their death? Now I, stay, I say this one with a bit of caution and care primarily because of the lesson text that was read just a moment ago. Would you please revisit with me Hebrews chapter 11? Maybe it has been as shocking to you as it has been to me. Let me again read it, and then we're going to pay some attention to the verb tenses. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Twice in verse 17, a verb tense appears. You noticed it with me that time, didn't you? By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. But you and I all know how that story ended. Isaac had his son bound on it, and as Isaac was ready to be offered, an angel stayed the hand of Abraham, and ultimately a ram was replaced. I thought Abraham really didn't offer Isaac. But the text here says he did. You noticed it with me, didn't you? By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac. And then later in the verse, it says it again. He that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. The inspired writer affirmed Abraham did offer him. Now that means something very significant. When you and I have studied through the characters comprising this honor roll of faith, by faith Noah built an ark. Well, he really did it. By faith. Various and sundry of the others, the verb tenses make sense. What sense does this verb tense make? The text says Abraham offered him. Now as you and I come to this seventh point, it seems to me that that's worthy of our consideration. By faith, Abraham offered. You'll notice the past tense is highlighted for us again in James 2 verse 21. It's not as if the New Testament doesn't emphasize this. In that little five-chapter book, one more time, it says that Abraham offered his son. How did he do this? Well, perhaps this is an explanation. Although it's true that ultimately an animal was substituted for Isaac, nonetheless, it should be appreciated that in the mind of Abraham, the deed was done. Did you notice earlier with me as we read the text, God gave Abraham the instruction, you take your son, and the next morning Abraham prepared everything and headed off to do it. He didn't hesitate. He didn't question. Don't you know that during that three days journey to the place, there were many things crossing through the mind of Abraham, but never is there a hint that he was not going to do it. His faith in God was that complete. His faith in God was that certain. If God said it, that's it. I'm going to do it. No wonder Abraham is called the father of the faithful. His trust, his assurance, his confidence in God was so strong that even if it involved the offering of his only son of promise, he intended to do it. 
in the mind of Abraham, it would appear that Isaac had already been offered. He was going to take his life. God knew that. That's why the angel stayed his hand. That seventh point leads us to appreciate then, if it was the case that that offering was complete in the mind of Abraham, and in fact, Isaac was already as good as dead, what about Jesus? As you and I come to Hebrews 9, 28, was Jesus offered? We've already seen Isaac was. Hebrews 9, 28 also points out this observation to us. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to them that look to Him, or for Him, shall He appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus was offered too. In the next chapter, Hebrews chapter 10, we notice verses 12 to 14, Christ was offered. And you and I through Him have the luxury, yea, the privilege of being reckoned as faithful and just and right. But the death is one amazing similarity. But if the death was so, what about the resurrection? Now this one is fascinating in many ways. Now you and I already know a lot about the resurrection of Jesus, but let's discuss the resurrection of Isaac for a moment. For after all, I left out one verse a moment ago. Go back to verse 19 of Hebrews 11. We've already highlighted that is in his mind, Isaac was as good as dead. That is to say, in the mind of Abraham... Abraham had offered him. Notice verse 19. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now may I ask, as you and I think about raising him up, here the explicit text is a reference to Isaac. In the mind of Abraham, his son was already dead. By the command of God, he had been told to take his life. And in Abraham's mind, that was as good as done. Abraham's faith was so strong. His confidence in God was so deep that he reasoned as follows. The God of heaven has promised that through my seed, through this son Isaac, all the nations of the world shall be blessed. And this son of promise has been brought to reality and I've been privileged and blessed to know him. And if God takes his life... The one and only way that this can ever happen, namely to bless the nations, is for God to raise him from the dead. That's stunning. Abraham's faith was that great. He knew, again, by name, Isaac was the one. There could never be another substitute. Ishmael nor any other would suffice. And if God says to take his life, the one and only explanation that Abraham would see is that God apparently is going to raise him from the dead. That's what verse 19 tells us. Accounting that, that phrase in English means the explanation for God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham was convinced that if he took the life of Isaac, God was going to raise him from the dead. And hence, there was to be a resurrection in the mind of Abraham of Isaac. And that's our eighth point. Now that resurrection and the reality of it brings us, of course, to Jesus. For you and I know that our Savior, although they buried His body in that tomb, we know very well that on the Sunday morning, that first day of the week when the women came, the stone was rolled away and the tomb was empty. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 4 highlight the gospel and it says that according to the Scriptures, He died, He was buried, and He was raised. 
that attitude and that reality of the crucifixion brings us to notice this resurrection is such a remarkable thing that has a very deep and great significance. Eight things so far between Isaac and Jesus that perhaps are incredibly amazing. What about number nine? What else between these two? The timing of it. Now, we read it a moment ago, but could I invite you again to notice Genesis chapter 22. How many days elapsed from the time when Abraham offered Isaac until they arrived back where the others were waiting? You noticed it with me in the text, didn't you? Notice again verse number 4. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. There apparently were three days between when the offering was to take place and when the reality of rejoining the others. That is to say, the appreciation of what would have been the resurrection. Three days? How many days elapsed between when our Lord was crucified and when He was resurrected? Three days. Again, the similarity of this ninth point leads us to appreciate that was a critical part of the New Testament matter. Are you getting a feeling that the particulars of the life of Isaac foreshadowed the grandeur and the details of the life of Jesus? It certainly would seem so. What about number 10? What about the matter of faith? In Hebrews 11, verse number 20, the following description of Isaac is given. That's Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 20. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob... And Esau concerning things to come. Isaac was a man of faith. This one, who of course was the son of Abraham, was himself a man devoted to the matters and the issues concerning faith. What about Jesus? As you come to Galatians 2 verse number 20, we read this unforgettable passage. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet tis not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. It's not faith in the Son of God, it's the faith of the Son of God. The faith of Jesus Christ. He too was a man of faith. A man devoted and determined to follow through those matters of obedience to God. Number 11. Yet another correspondence between the life of Isaac and the life of Jesus. I've called it community. But you noticed in Genesis 26, verse number 4, the following statement about the life of Isaac. Chapter 26, verse 4, this was one of those occasions when God rather directly spoke to Isaac as that son of promise and gave him some information much like what he had given to his father Abraham. It says, "...and I will make thy seed to multiply as the stars of heaven." And will give unto thy seed all these countries, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isaac, you're going to have a lot of descendants. You, in essence, will be the father, the head, if you please, of a large family, a community of people. Now, when you and I think of that, what about Jesus? Wasn't it also the case that he too founded, formed as the head of a community? We call it the church. May I ask you to appreciate Matthew 16, 18. Jesus Himself said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Later, in Romans 16, 16, the churches of Christ salute you. 
a community of believers also flowed from the loins of our Savior. We've seen 11 correspondences, 11 similarities, if you please, that set the matters of the life of Isaac directly parallel to the life of Jesus. Are you getting a feeling that whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning? That these issues concerning Isaac, God set within him the matters and realities touching that great one that was to be born about 20 centuries later, if you count from the time of Isaac forward. Let's summarize our lesson like this. Eleven correspondences. I hope that our study of Isaac has brought in us the great way that God's in control of time. The matters of the life of Isaac, they really happened. It's not just a made-up story. Isaac was a man who lived, and yet these things and these issues that we've studied really were a foreshadowing reality of the life of that great Son of God that was to come. I hope our faith has been strengthened as we've reflected on Isaac and Jesus. And I hope that increased and enriched strength will be such that you and I will be rejuvenated this week to be the fervent and strong, ardent followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, there may be someone in the audience whose life is not as it ought to be. Maybe you've never become a Christian. If that's the circumstance of your heart tonight, I hope that you will appreciate that the very God who orchestrated the affairs of our study tonight is watching very carefully your life too. The very hairs of your head are numbered, Matthew 10 verse 30 tells us. And not only that, you're one day going to stand before Him in judgment. Don't you want to be ready to meet Him in a happy way and not a regretful one? If tonight we could assist you in becoming a Christian, realize God has dictated what you must do. It's not our elders, it's not myself. You must believe Jesus to be the Son of God and do so with all your heart. You've got to repent of your sins and you've got to confess His name as the Son of God and you must be baptized. If we could assist you in doing that tonight, what an honorable and wonderful time of celebration. If you've become a Christian though, you know what it's like to be a member of the family of God. You know what it is to appreciate a faith like what Isaac had and what others in the Bible have had. But you, for some reason, perhaps weakness, perhaps laziness or otherwise, you have stumbled, you have walked away from what you once appreciated. Don't you want to come back to your first love? Don't you want again to be reestablished as a strong element and component of the faith of Jesus Christ? If we could pray to God on your behalf for forgiveness of sins known publicly, we'd be happy to do that too. We would only invite you to let us know that so that we'd be happy to celebrate with you. If tonight anyone would have either of these needs, we would urge you to come and to do so without delay while together we stand and while we sing.